Well, please do turn in your Bibles or on your device to Mark chapter 15, verse 40. And we've got to our final part of Mark, uh, finishing appropriately on Easter Day on the resurrection. Now, if you look at your Bibles, um, it's page 852 if you're using the church Bibles, um, you'll see that there is a a note at the end of verse 8. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. So I'm just going to spend a minute addressing that issue before we read it and look at it, because uh, it's a big question as to whether Mark's gospel finishes at verse 8 or not. Until the last hundred years or so, the consensus was that the original ending to Mark's gospel had been lost. It would have been right at the center of the scroll, uh, wound up, and it's possible it broke off. Um, Remember, in Mark's day, there were no photocopiers, there was no backing up to the cloud or anything like that. And the material after verse 8, so what you might see if you're looking at your Bible, uh, verse 9 following, there is a short version, which is often in the footnote, and then a longer version, sometimes printed. That is almost certainly not from Mark's hand, but an understandable attempt by the early church to provide a satisfactory finale to what seems an unfinished work. It seems to sort of hang in the air at the end of verse 8. Having said that, the idea that verse 8 is a deliberate ending by Mark is possible. It's quite popular now in the last 50 to 100 years. Um, It's quite postmodern in a sense because it leaves it sort of, it's an interesting ending if it is a deliberate one. Uh, But the truth is we don't know. My own suspicion on balance is that the original ending is lost, but I certainly wouldn't go to the stake for that. Um, But we're just going to look at the text as we have it, up to verse 8. So let's read together from 15, verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, they had followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come or was approaching, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, and at the Sabbath you you couldn't work or you couldn't travel, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you that the risen Lord Jesus ascended to your right hand and poured out your Spirit upon your people. And we pray for your Holy Spirit's help for preacher and listener alike this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message is clear and simple. Jesus was dead and buried. He rose from the dead bodily. This is astonishing, and it's very good news. So let's look at those in turn. First of all, Jesus was dead and buried, chapter 15, verses 40 to 47. Now, in verse 40, Mark names three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. These are key witnesses, as we'll see in the account as it unfolds. Now, you may or may not know that in Jewish law, women's testimony didn't always count. In public cases, it counted for nothing. But in Jesus' kingdom, the witness of women is crucial. And think about it for a moment. If this was a made-up story and not true and had been fabricated by Jews in the first century, they would not have had the key witnesses as women because of that would have undermined the credibility of the story that they were making up. So, in a kind of ironic way, it's actually proof positive that this is a true story. And if you are a woman and a follower of Jesus, this should make you stand with your head held high. Women count in God's kingdom. In verse 40, these women are witnesses of Jesus' death, even though they are looking on from a distance, as Mark puts it. The Romans didn't allow any celebration of the execution of criminals. Sabbath, in the Jewish understanding, begins at sundown. And when the Sabbath begins and the sun has gone down, no work or travel is permitted. So in verse 42, as evening is approaching, it's the day of preparation for the, it's the special Sabbath. It's this weekend, as you know, in, in, in the Jewish calendar. It's the Passover celebration, even as we celebrate Easter. 
They had to get everything ready on the day of preparation. Once the Sabbath had begun, when the sun had gone down, no more work, no more preparation. So Joseph, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's about 70 people in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, who was himself, we're told, looking for the kingdom of God. Again, Mark doesn't tell us exactly what that meant, but there was, there was a sense in which he was looking like all devout Jews for the Messiah to come and liberate his people. And he must have seen in Jesus Christ, even though the great majority of the Sanhedrin had voted to have Jesus crucified earlier, back at the beginning of chapter 15, Joseph must have taken a dissenting view. And he's finally coming out into the open. And it says, verse 42, 43, he took courage. Literally, he dared to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. He breaks ranks and comes out. Now, of course, Pilate is surprised because, verse 44, to hear that Jesus should already have died because often, gruesomely, it took days for people crucified to die. They just hung there, lingering, so, Pilate wants to know. He summons the centurion, verse 44, and asks him, has Jesus really died? And when the centurion confirms, verse 45, that Jesus was dead, Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, the centurion was a professional executioner, and it was more than his life was worth, literally, to make a mistake when certifying an executed person as dead. I think the Romans had a nice little rule that if you got that wrong, you paid for it with your life. Unlike, say, a doctor today certifying someone dead. As someone married to a doctor, I'm glad the law has changed on that. Um, so that confirms that Jesus really was dead. Then you have Joseph of Arimathea wrapping Jesus' body. He's bought this linen shroud, and we see in verse 46, he, he took Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud. So there is Joseph, a, a secret follower, it seems, of Jesus. And he's got his body in front of him. He's wrapping it in this linen shroud. Now, if there were any signs of life as he wrapped his body in the linen shroud, surely he'd have stopped wrapping, and he'd have called a doctor and he tried to help Jesus revive from whatever. But no, he carries on, wrapping and then lays him in a tomb. It's another little piece of evidence corroborating the reality of Jesus' death. So this theory that sometimes is mooted that, oh, well, Jesus just swooned. He didn't actually die, and then in the cool of the tomb, he revived. That is scotched by this kind of evidence. And then in verse 47, Mark yet again names the women. He wants us to know these women were actually there, and you know who they are. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. In other words, they clearly followed Joseph from the place of execution to the tomb and observed Joseph putting the body into the tomb. So again, the theory that, oh, well, the women were a bit confused, they went to the wrong tomb on the Sunday morning, that is also scotched. Mark is very clear. The women followed Joseph. They saw where Jesus' body 
was laid. There was no mistake. And again, Mark underlines it at the beginning of chapter 16. It's the same women. He names them again. When the Sabbath was passed, so here we're at the end of the Saturday. Uh, the sun has gone down. Sabbath is over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, these three women, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Mark is crystal clear. Jesus was dead and buried. Second, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. Now, Mark stresses in verse 4 of chapter 16 that the stone Joseph had rolled against the entrance to the tomb to stop robbers coming into the tomb, to stop wild animals um, attacking the body, whatever it might be. This stone, you can see it there at the end of verse 4, was very large. And although the women had bought spices in the market the night before, they knew as they walked to the tomb in the uh, breaking light of day that they had an impossible logistical challenge on their hands. So verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They knew it was a huge stone. Well, to their great surprise, the stone, when they looked up in verse 4, they saw had already been rolled back. Now, these tombs, there are still some surviving in the Jerusalem area, if you ever get a chance to visit, um, were kind of walk-in tombs carved into the rock with rooms for multiple bodies. And the women, as they go into the tomb, are in for a great surprise. Verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. See the place where they laid him. Now, do you see what's going on here? This young man, an angel we read in Matthew, this angel confirms that they've come to exactly the right tomb. This is the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. You've come to the right tomb, ladies. But he's not here anymore. But I can show you the place where his body was laid to rest. And he points it out to them. See the place where they laid him, verse 6. The precise place where his body lay. Now, do you see what is being necessarily implied here? The angel is implying that the body that was laying in this spot that he points out, this body has gone, therefore Jesus is raised. These things go together. This is a bodily resurrection. It's not that he said, oh, well, this is, you can see the corpse here in the linen shroud, but don't worry, Jesus is kind of, his spirit has kind of risen away. So he's sort of risen, but spiritually. No, this is not a disembodied resurrection of the spirit. This is a bodily resurrection that we're talking about. He's not here. He has risen. The body has gone. This is a bodily resurrection. Thirdly, this is astonishing. Yes, Jesus was dead and buried, but he's risen from the dead bodily. And thirdly, this is absolutely astonishing. So the reaction of the women in verse 8 is right and proper. They went 
out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And every single one of us, had we been in their shoes and gone into that tomb and saw what they saw and heard what they heard, we would be in exactly the same emotional state of trembling and astonishment. Because the bodily resurrection of Jesus is astonishing. And just because we may be familiar from our background with the idea that, well, of course, it's Easter Day, we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead, we know that. It's very easy that it becomes less astonishing for us because of our familiarity with it. But if you think about it, objectively, it is absolutely astonishing that this should happen. Jesus was clearly dead and buried. Now, repeatedly, Mark records, you can turn back to chapter 8, verse 31, if you want to see this, that um, Jesus had said that he would die and then rise from the dead after three days. There it is in, in Mark 8, 31. They've just come to the conclusion, Peter has confessed on behalf of Jesus', of Jesus apostles that they really do think he's the Messiah, he is the Christ. And then verse 31 of chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But that's not the end of the story. He says, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, verse 32. There was no misunderstanding, no ambiguity about what he was saying. Move on to chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. You want to say, well, what didn't you understand about it? Pretty plain, isn't it? Well, they just... The, the cogs in their brain just didn't seem to engage with this. And then chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him. Verse 32. Verse 33, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I am tempted to say, aren't you, well, which bit of that didn't you understand? How many times do we have to say this before you finally get it? It's interesting, isn't it, that back to chapter 16, none of the women said to one another, hang on a minute as they were just about to buy the spices in the market and fork out the money. I'm sure those spices weren't cheap. None of them said, hang on a minute. Why don't we just save our money and wait those three days that Jesus talked about? He said he'd die, and then three days later he'd rise again. Well, let's just take a punt on it and wait for three days, shall we? Keep our money in our purse. No. Now, I don't know about your culture, but in the culture I was brought up in, in this country, in the south of England, uh, we are seldom exposed to dead bodies, are we? First time I saw a dead body was when I sat 
beside my mother. She died, and I was aged 33. I'd never seen a dead body in the flesh before in my life. Now, I know there are other cultures. We then moved to Ireland um, some years later, and of course, the Irish culture is completely different, where you constantly see dead bodies. There's a wake. There's, there are open coffins in homes, and you see the, the face of the person. Uh, so you're, some cultures, and maybe you're from one of them, is, is people are much more exposed to, to dead bodies. And one of the remarkable things, I remember it struck me as, uh, as my mother had just died, or as she was dying, I remember one of the things that struck me was realizing that she'd gone, that her body was still here, but she'd gone. And when someone dies and you see their body, you know that they're dead, they're gone. And you don't lean over and give them a shake and say, come on, wake up, wakey, wakey. Like someone who's overslept, who needs to get up, they've slept through their alarm again, and you have to shake them and get them up. I mean, to do that to a person that you know is dead would be madness. Now, if we know it now, even in a culture like this one in the south of England, where we have so little exposure to dead bodies, how much more did they know it in a culture like Jesus' culture, like many other cultures in this world, where the exposure to dead bodies was much more frequent and obvious, and people knew when someone was dead. The, the idea that people were more gullible then than now is just ludicrous, apart from arrogant. Now, these women knew that Jesus was dead, and dead is dead. So the idea that he's risen was an absolutely astonishing idea to them, even though he'd said it to them several times, or at least to the other disciples who would certainly presumably have passed it on. It is an astonishing thing for a dead person to rise. It was astonishing that Jesus rose from the dead. They were astonished. We should be astonished. But that doesn't stop it being true. Some very unusual things can happen, can't they? that you witness. You think, did that really happen? That's why I've kept it on. Just to remind you that it really did happen, all right? You know, you saw. This is absolutely astonishing. And finally, fourthly, it's very good news. It really is good news. Do you remember how Mark started his gospel? Just, you might want to flick back to the beginning to remind yourself. His very opening words are these. The beginning of the gospel, the good news, the great news, probably a better translation, the great news of Jesus, Messiah, the promised King, the Son of God, God from heaven. That's what he sets out to establish. He's right clear at the beginning what he's about. And we reached at the end of our last session in Mark, that moment where the centurion who had overseen Jesus' crucifixion points out and says, this is the Son of God. It was, a la it was language you would only use of the emperor who was perceived to be divine. This was divine person language. It's the, the language that he went to, the centurion, to try and explain what it was about the manner of Jesus' death that, that that was demonstrated to him. So Mark has shown that the disciples in, in chapter 8 get to the point where they finally confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the King. 
but they don't understand about his death. And then as he's dying on the cross, or just after he's died, the centurion, the Roman Gentile centurion, or at least non-Jewish centurion, might not have been Roman, but he certainly wasn't Jewish. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So we've reached this high point. And Mark has been wanting us to know that this is really good news, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And now we see that this crucified Messiah, the Son of God, has risen from the grave. It shouldn't be astonishing if you think of who he was and where he'd come from. And yet it is astonishing. But whatever, it is very good news. Let's think just as we close about three things that are good news about it regarding the past, the present, and the future, all from Mark's gospel. This is very good news as we think about our past. What does the messenger say in verse 7? of Mark 16. Go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter. And Peter? Well, Peter's one of the disciples. That's redundant. Why, just, why not just say, go tell his disciples? Because Peter's one of them. Why mention him by name? If you're going to mention him by name, why not mention them all by name? Why, why not the rest of them feel they've kind of been missed out? Well, if we've been paying attention to what Mark has recorded, we know the answer to why the young man, the angel, says, tell his disciples and Peter. Who was it who took Jesus aside to rebuke him when he first spoke plainly about his death and resurrection and was then told that he was acting like the devil, he'd gone to the other side? Who was it who, who claimed that even if the rest of Jesus' followers fell away, he would stand firm? And who then within hours denied three times that he even knew Jesus? Well, you know the answer as well as I do. It's Peter. When the last we heard of Peter, he just heard the cock crow. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times, Peter. He just heard the cock crow after the third denial, and he broke down and wept. And the messenger says, oh, make sure you tell Peter, yes, Peter, that Jesus wants to see him with the rest of the disciples. My friend, I don't know what kind of a mess you've made of following Jesus. I know the kind of messes I've made. Maybe you've even denied at one point that you were a Christian in a moment of madness. Or maybe you ignored him for decades of your life. Maybe you're ignoring him right now and you've been dragged kicking and screaming into church on Easter Sunday morning. That and Christmas maybe at a push. Well, whatever your past record, the risen Jesus wants you. Yes, you, your name. Can you hear your name? He's saying your name. He wants you to be included along with the rest of his disciples, whatever the past. Now, I don't know if you've had your invite to the coronation yet, if you had your invite. I'm still, I'm disappointed I've not had mine yet, but, you know, you wait and maybe there's a problem with the post, I don't know, but um, 
Let me assure you that Jesus is issuing you an invitation by name to his coronation. May I, may I suggest RSVP, ASAP. So this is very good news as we think of the past. It's also very good news as we think of the present. I'm assuming for a moment that you're a follower of Jesus or maybe someone who's considering following Jesus and counting the cost. Now, what would I have to do to be a follower of Jesus? Well, Jesus was very clear back in, in Mark chapter 8. You might just want to turn to it, Mark 8, 34. He'd just spoken for the first time openly and clearly about his own path of suffering to death before the resurrection on the third day. And he said in Mark 8:34 to the crowd and his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What, you've got to say no to yourself? Yeah. And you've got to say, I'm prepared to go to the cross, I'm prepared to die for Christ? Yeah. Those are the terms and conditions. It's not small print, it's big print. Right at the top. That's what's involved in following Jesus. And then at the end of that section, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And you think, when did Jesus say that? About 2,000 years ago? When he comes? Is he coming? It's been a long time, hasn't it? Is he really going to come one day in the glory of his Father with his holy angels? Is there going to be a moment when we stand before him and he's either not ashamed of us or ashamed of us? He either says, I'm sorry, and is ashamed of us, or he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your father, my Father's joy. Now, if you're a Christian, you know perfectly well which one you want to hear of those. But it depends, doesn't it, on how we're going to follow Jesus, whether we're prepared to say no to ourselves when everything around us, our culture, everything says, no, say yes to yourself. Whatever it is you want, say yes. Whoever you want to be, say yes. And Jesus says, no. Say no to yourself. Our culture says, try and make life as easy as you can possibly make it. And Jesus says, no, be prepared to die for me, to go to the front and lay down your life in the battle. And you sometimes wonder, is this really worth it? Am I prepared to do this? And the resurrection of Jesus says, my friends, if he said, and on the third day, I will rise again, and he did, then when he says he's going to come with his father's angels and his father's glory, and the key thing is whether we're ashamed of him now or not, whether we follow him as he says or not, that is the key thing for now, then surely, 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 we should say, Lord, I'm prepared to say no to myself. I'm prepared to lay down my life for you. Because whatever temporary sacrifice we may make in this life will be repaid a million times over and more when Jesus comes again. Well, we've already got to our third thing, thinking about the future. 
thinking of the past, the present, and the future. You know, one of the wonderful things about the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today is that Jesus' resurrection body is the prototype of the resurrection body that all his followers are going to get. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're into, say, cars or something, and the, it's the Paris Motor Show, and there's this new model um, unveiled, wow! You think, wouldn't I like one of those? But you know, you know you're never going to get it. Far too expensive. Um, well, when Jesus' resurrection body is unveiled, and this prototype is, is seen before us and demonstrated, actually, we are going to get it. That's the promise for the future. Philippians chapter 3, page 982 in the church Bibles. I love reading this verse to people. Um, I'll be careful what I say now. The cat is out of the bag. People whose bodies are falling apart. So when I come to visit you and I read Philippians 3, 20 and 21, you'll know what I think of your body. Um, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, what's he going to do when he comes? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Wow! What a promise, what a future. Now, some of you young people are, are reading this and, or listening to this and thinking, I don't know what he's talking about. My body's great. Well, just wait a few years. <laughs> and then you'll discover, I think it comes up medically, I think it's about your mid-twenties when the decline begins, just to encourage you. Uh, and bondage to decay becomes more than a vague thought about the dentist and becomes a daily reality in your self-awareness. But what a thrilling prospect. This is not the end of the story. Because of Jesus' resurrection, as we look to the future, we know that these lowly bodies, yes, the very ones that we are in right now, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, will be transformed to be like His glorious body. It's astonishing, this news about Jesus' resurrection. But it's wonderful to think that we're going to get this solid but supernatural body. Jesus was dead and buried but rose bodily from the dead. It's astonishing, and of course it is, but it's very good news for our past. It's all forgiven. For our present, it's worth it. And for our glorious future, we will have a body like Jesus' body forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.